I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Dave Laird. And this is The Great Concavity. Nice. Well, welcome everybody to the second episode of The Great Concavity. Matt, how's it going down in Austin? Pretty well, pretty well, Dave. Uh, We didn't talk much last time. I realize now about the end of the tour. And that's true. Yeah, we started, we mentioned it a bit and said it's a possible topic direction. So that's where we're going tonight. I think we should explore that a little more in depth here today. Definitely. Um, Definitely. So this has really been for David Foster Wallace fans, one of the biggest events uh, of the year, to say the least. I mean, having a feature film made about a writer is rare in Hollywood to begin with especially for one who is so relatively young. You know, it's not someone about Shakespeare or Jack Kerouac. It's someone who was born in 1962, right? So I think it sort of loomed large over the past uh, year or two, really since the project was announced. And then that picture came out of Siegel in the getup. You know, people have really been waiting (laughs) since that time. And now where we're at today is the movie is basically out of theaters. Maybe it's still at some few theaters left, but we're really just waiting for the DVD. But why don't you talk about, you and I saw the movie together, basically. We did, yeah. We got got an advanced screening at the second annual Wallace Conference, which we talked about a bit last episode, uh, which was pretty incredible um, and kind of a, I think you mentioned the kind of a highlight or kind of a cohesive moment at the conference that we all, all these people from all over North America and Australia and the UK and a bunch of other places got to watch this film together. And like you said, it's been pretty highly anticipated by people who are interested in Wallace and who feel invested in Wallace and, and how he's portrayed in, in popular culture. Um, so we went to this very old historic theater in Bloomington, Normal, Illinois, and got a, a private screening. I think they invited people from the community as well, from their film club or or whatever. So that was cool. And then, so we watched the film and then James Ponsult, the director, uh, came on through Skype and did a Q&A for about an hour or so. And that was a really, for me, a really cool insight into seeing sort of his uh, process a bit and seeing his approach to how he wanted to portray Wallace. And I had... I, I don't know about you, Matt, but I had some anxiety before seeing the film. Like I was a bit nervous about how it would sort of go down. Did you sort of have that before the film? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, of course. And my first time seeing the film was not that time, but a few weeks before I had seen it in LA at this right. screening room, kind of a media screening that the production company a 24 had invited me to, so I took him up on it and went to this advanced screening that was about maybe 40 people and mostly journalists who were there just in that screening room to review all kinds of different stuff. And it was a totally different vibe for me um, because I hadn't even seen the trailer. Like I think when you and I saw it, the trailer had come out like a week before the conference. And so yeah, it was really fresh. It, sure. it was really fresh, and like we saw it in May. Yeah, people were really building up to it, and the trailer built like, you know, that was the first time a lot of people had heard Siegel 
talking as Wallace, you know, playing the role and not just the Instagram photos, you know? Um, yeah. So when I saw it, I had not seen the trailer before. I had no idea really what the movie would be like. And for me, what maybe we'll talk more about this because it gets into Siegel's performance. But for me, a big part of it was really how Siegel would talk and if his voice was slightly off or it didn't sound like Wallace, I, I probably would have ruined the movie for me or taken me out of it. So I had anxiety about that. Uh, and, and I was yeah. pretty put at ease. The first few scenes where I watched him, I said, wow, he, he's actually really does sound like him. He's got it down. Yeah. That's one thing that really struck me early as well, watching it. And it was the, sort of the cadence that Wallace spoke with was really well portrayed by Siegel. I was, I was really impressed by his kind of preparation for that and his being able to nail that impersonation. Well, I don't know if it's impersonation. I mean, that was the dig against him, right? It was just an impersonation and not acting. I went back and watched, you know, a bunch of the, the Wallace YouTube videos of him on Charlie Rose and in Italy and interviews. And Wallace is quite different actually, but I think it's the imitation really to me of, the, you know, the voice and the appearance together is that they're, they're close enough that Siegel's still able to get like his goofy grin in there and be his own person. Um, but yeah. that, that was a big, I mean, it still is a big topic of debate. Like, did he portray him accurately? Should he have portrayed him accurately? Should he have, you know, interpreted the role differently? And right. And taken creative license and how he yeah. spun it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of issues with that. But the first time I saw the film, I was very anxious almost the whole time. Just, sweating. Well, just, I'm sweaty. just because I felt like I was struggling to enjoy it as a movie. And I was like, I, I liked it as a movie. I thought, wow, this is really going well. But I was thinking, like, wow, am I really just saying that because I know I'm going to have to talk about this later and explain it to people? Or can I sort of unselfconsciously just sit back and watch this film? And it was very hard for me to, like, let go of my self-consciousness and just enjoy it. By the second time I saw it in uh, normal, I was able to do that. But I don't know if, did you have any of that just sweating or did you just like let go and enjoy it? I had a, a pretty similar experience. I've only seen it the one time. I haven't seen it since. It never actually made it to the city that I live in because it's pretty small and we don't get all of the small indie films all the time, uh, which is too bad because, you know, my wife's interested to see it and a lot of my friends are interested to see it. So just have to wait for the digital release or whatever. But yeah, it was like, it was hard to separate for me, like you said, uh, watching it as a film and just enjoying it for what it was. Uh, versus just thinking about it, just analyzing every scene so critically, thinking about portrayal and thinking about uh, how accurate is this to, although of course you end up becoming yourself, and the way that I interpreted that book versus how it's being shown on the screen. And so there were, yeah, there were like these two levels of experience watching it. And I think as a, as a movie, as just kind of a, just a narrative and like a conversation film, a buddy pick or whatever, road trip movie, it was it was interesting and I was engaged and I enjoyed it. But then it was like, I'm also just thinking really hard about how the portrayal is going in every scene, you know? And there, there was a weird tension between those two kind of uh, lines there. Yeah. I thought the, okay. I thought the accuracy of it to the book was pretty close because m most all of the dialogue was taken directly from there and it's traceable back there. Although they, they do take liberties with it 
and add stuff in. And I know Lipsky was involved in, you know, the the production of the movie, if not the screenplay itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lipsky was involved, and that was also weird for me. You know, you were saying how it's weird seeing Wallace on the screen, but I was also paying attention to the way Eisenberg was playing Lipsky because I, you know, I would count Lipsky as a friend of mine, and I have you know met him and hung out with him on several occasions, numerous times, and I think it's really weird to see someone that you know, obviously, being portrayed on screen. So I get that aversion, but I can't, I can't imagine what it must be like to be him and to see someone else saying your words on screen and portraying you to, to mass audience. So that's got to be a surreal experience for him, but he seems to have handled it pretty well. And, you know, there's this other perception that he's somehow making bank off of the movie and that there's been a lot of criticism in some essays about, you know, or really cynically saying, oh, Lipsky just did all of this to cash in. And I don't, I don't think that's true at all. I mean, for one, he's a university professor and money's not his problem. Right. Well, it's like, he's got other best-selling books. Like this was right. one of his best-selling books, but not the most best-selling book. Like he had this book about West Point that was a huge success. And he's a bit writer for Rolling Stone. Like he's not some guy off the street trying to make a buck. So right. this was, and this was not also the Avengers movie. Like this was <laughs> a pretty modest budget and a pretty modest turnout so yeah for sure um so you're like his portrayal by eisenberg how did you how did you find it between knowing this guy david lipsky and do you think jesse eisenberg portrayed him in an accurate way or or is that kind of less important to the audience than how wallace is portrayed maybe i think it's less important i think that it's also gets to the fact of does it even matter then like even with wallace or lipsky does it matter how accurate this is really trying to be because it's it's staying true to their words and the spirit of their five days together so i think that you know if it's accurate to that you know the fact that lipsky is taller than wallace or was as tall as wallace and is you know is as tall stuff like that and i think you know lipsky is like a better looking guy than jesse eisenberg (laughs) i i i I think that 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 type of stuff comes through to people that know them but doesn't really matter to the what the film is trying to do you know right yeah for sure um uh in terms of the the interpersonal stuff that the film explores between lipsky and wallace namely what appears to be Lipsky's anxiety about, you know, wanting to be a famous writer himself. And Wallace seems to have achieved this really critical acclaim. And, you know, you get the sense that Eisenberg's character in the movie is is quite jealous and wants to have what Wallace has. How much of of that do you get the impression from from reading? Although, of course, you end up becoming yourself because that didn't really come out to me in that text, although it's been quite a few years since I've read it. Oh, no, I think the whole book is really about that. I think the whole book is really about what does it feel like to get fame and feel unfulfilled. And that's something. Yeah, for sure. And that's something Wallace explores in his own work. But but like Lipsky being jealous of Wallace. Do you see that? Did you see that coming through in the book? No, that that's like like in the way that we see it coming through in the film. I don't think it's as blatant in either one. Actually, it's interesting that you say that like him being really jealous. I think that 
anyone would be jealous of someone that had a really successful book or an author who yeah. did really well. But I don't see it as being like, oh, he he just really wants to be him. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. maybe I'm naive there. <laughs> no, that makes that makes sense. But I mean, like, there's got to be some kind of uh, like for the for the film to be interesting, there's got to be some kind of conflict, right? Some kind of drama, right? And they kind of build up to that where they have that confrontation in the kitchen where he's like, "Be a good guy." Like, that's not really in the book, um, right? Yeah. But they do build up to this tension where anyone where you spend five days with them there's going to be some tension anyways. And in the book, it's easy to, you know, cut that out or, you know, you don't need it for the type of interview book that that was. You don't need it to have like dramatic tension, but you do for a film. Yeah, exactly. And you could communicate a lot more just by having them be cold to each other, you know, in a film rather than, um, you know, portraying that in the book. I, I don't know. I think a lot of what the book was about was what does it feel like to get this sort of fame, to know that you wrote a masterpiece or that everyone is telling you you wrote something massive that is a genius genius and you wrote a masterpiece. Isn't that what every writer wants? How does it feel? And Wallace never gives him a straight answer on that. Never really says it feels good. It feels bad. He says, you know, this is not real. Mm hmm. Yeah, there's kind of the facade, the facade of fame, kind of. Yeah, Wallace. And one and one of the things that really stood out to me in the book, reading it, is like Wallace seems to be absolutely obsessed with coming off as disingenuous, and so he's he's constantly clarifying what he means, and he's you know he's always saying like I don't want to be seen as this or that or whatever. Um, And so, yeah, how do you navigate that kind of fame and how the public sees you versus what you're just actually like as a dude in your life, you know? And for all his stuttering about it, I think he's actually brilliant at that as well. I think he was a master of kind of honing his own image and whatever anxiety it gave him, he was able to at least keep his um, his image consistent with who he really was, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. so I, I think he was really good at it. And that that part of it was that self-consciousness and admitting that self-consciousness and talking about that self-consciousness and just saying, Oh, I'm, I'm aware that I don't want to sound like, you know, a D bag here. I'm just coming. I I don't want to sound goofy, but he is goofy. Um, so, but that makes him more authentic and that's really what people are looking for, you know, in terms of, I think any artist is, are they authentic or are they some copycat? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So uh, another thing that he talks about a lot in there is the sort of chasing a a career or success and, and tying that to happiness does, you know, success at all give you happiness. And I, I don't know, like for Wallace, it doesn't really show him in that movie as being super happy with anything that he did regard in regards to infinite jest and and he talks about this in in the charlie rose interview where he says something about like teachers right and people work hard and you know you get a gold watch at the end of it i'm really butchering this paraphrase by the way but, <laughs> that's okay um but really what's the point of life then is it really just to chase this gold watch what how do you you know forget some fulfillment from your career in terms of like day-to-day happiness Mm -hmm. yeah that seems to be 
one of the major themes that not only is in Wallace's interviews and his discussion of this stuff in public, but also I think even like in most of his texts, this is kind of an issue, right? Like the tennis kids at the academy and at Enfield Tennis Academy in Infinite Jest. Like I just think of the scene with Lyle and um, do you remember which character it is? It's, who, it's the one Chu. Who's, is it it's Lamont Chu. Chu. Yeah, Lamont Chu. Totally obsessed with making the show, right? And and the whole discourse about him seeing himself in the magazine is what he's obsessed with. But then the anxiety really quickly becomes not seeing yourself in the magazine. Right. Once you've achieved that, right? Like, right. Wallace is very conscious of those kinds of things. And like you said, like, what is it that equates to ultimate happiness and fulfillment? And and they talk about that. Lipsky brings it up in the book. He asks him about the Lamont Chu thing and reads him directly from it saying like, oh, this sounds like your experience with being a writer and publishing. And Wallace hedges on that. He doesn't want to commit to anything there. But <laughs> I, I think it's very true that if you're a struggling writer, any struggling writer, and you're sitting at home and you're unpublished and you feel like a failure, and if someone came to you and said, what would make you happy right now? You would say, well, maybe if I wrote a really great novel that I was proud of, that was critically acclaimed, and I you know, got to go on Charlie Rose and talk about my fictional characters and people came and took photos of me and put them in magazines, all of that stuff, the trappings of fame, that's what people think would make them happy. And yeah. it's still true. Like I don't know that any of this lesson has really sunk in from Wallace's fiction. I think a lot of it is still part of our you know, consumeristic culture and this materialism around fame and internet celebrities and people are, are wanting to, you know, get that fame still, even though everyone who's had it will tell you it's hollow, it's empty. Yeah, it's, it, there is a, an insanely weird tension between those two things because, you know, it's pretty clear from if you follow any kind of celebrity gossip or whatever, that like a lot of these people who are really rich and really famous are, are fairly unhappy. And that's not all of them. And, it's, and it certainly doesn't mean that like all of them have clinical depression issues or whatever but like yeah we we know we all know that if you get famous and rich it doesn't make you happy we all know that but yeah we also have this kind of invincibility complex thinking that yeah that's true for those people but if it happened to me i would be happy i would be satisfied by, by those things you know it's how like teenagers think of themselves as like nothing bad will ever happen to them they'll, right. they'll never like get in that fatal drinking and driving accident that they see on like 900 PSAs oh, yeah. going through high school. And it's kind of like, I, maybe it's like that for us as a culture that we know these things aren't really where ultimate value lie. But if it happened to me, you know, I would make those things be worth, you know, everything. Yeah. It's American exceptionalism for sure. And that people think really what else is there then money would solve a lot of my problems, fame and fortune it would make me feel better right mm -hmm. and yeah sure that you know the the lesson like i say i don't think has really is maybe not even one that you can learn before you experience it firsthand because it's what people seek i mean especially with writers they have to be self promoters these days and so they have yeah. to be out pushing this level of kind of pseudo celebrity and there's you know some writers that are big enough to opt out of it, but those smaller ones who do opt out of it, they stay small. I mean, or they stay, yeah. they stay out of the limelight 
you know, there's a few exceptions. Everyone will always bring up like, oh, Don DeLillo and Cormac McCarthy and stuff. But yeah, Don, Pynchon. yeah, Pynchon, but like Don DeLillo is not a hermit. Like he does go out in public and go to readings and, you know, stay involved in the literary community. But he would he's not going on the Today Show anytime soon. Right. Cor- Cormac McCarthy did go on Oprah. You know, yeah, and I think he, yeah, I he's that. even way less involved in the literary world because he lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Delillo is you know just outside New York City, so he does get into the city quite often. And you know, I've seen him at NYU, and like, it's not like oh, Pinchon where like or Pinchon, yeah, like he's got the paper bag over his head <laughs> yeah. on the Simpsons, right? I mean, <laughs> it's like people don't even know what the guy looks like, even though he has you know, a book editor and people in the publishing world who know him, he's also an exceptional case. So people always bring up these exceptional cases, but most writers have to be out there very publicly trying to raise their profile. And Wallace, you know, talks about that in the interview with Lipsky about how he feels like he owes it to his publisher to do the publicity that they ask him to do because he knows it will help sell the books. So he's not above saying that, like, oh, I'm I'm a this pure artist and I can't be involved in the world. In the cons- in like the capitalistic side of this enterprise, right? That's, I mean, that's not what he wants either. He, I think, as much as any writer, he wanted to be a success, a publishing success, and that does involve publicity and you know doing interviews with Rolling Stone, um, and also just to get laid. Well, too, that's what he says. says. It would be nice, nice little <laughs> side effect. Of his fantasy world of having literary groupies. Yeah. But if anyone did have literary groupies, it was him. For sure. So the the question we haven't really broached here about the film, and it's been probably the main question since the film was announced, was should it exist? Yeah. There's um, one of the first things that I saw regarding this question came from a literary blog called Biblioclept. Oh, I know. And I think you follow that. Yeah. I think we talked about this a little bit. Um, And so it came out with this piece called, and this was quite a few years, a few years ago, like as soon as it was announced, although of course you end up riffing obliquely on how a David Foster Wallace road trip movie is a terrible idea. And then he gives 25 points about why this movie shouldn't exist more or less, or at least he's expressing his anxieties about this film existing. Uh, and there's a few points that I thought were quite funny, but he also is kind of generous too uh, in how he talks about it. So like point 21, he says, Lipsky's book features one of the most intriguing characters in late 20th century literature, David Foster Wallace performing David Foster Wallace, attempting to not perform David Foster Wallace by acknowledging that David Foster <laughs> Wallace is self-consciously aware of performing himself. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> so yeah. like, that's a pretty good meta description of what's going on there. Right. And, you and I kind of like, we sort of felt that kind of anxiety too. Just he articulated in a really funny way. So then he talks about, you know, like these guys are hanging out, you know, I can imagine sort of how the adaptation is going to look. It's a buddy film, a road trip film. Uh, You know, they're, they're waxing hard. They have some high laughs, uh, things like that. Um, So he's like, you know, uh, I'm kind of scared of this movie. Um, And like, how can it just not be a cash grab? is one of his points, point 24. But then his last thing, point 25, he says, I could be wrong, though. I'm fine with being wrong. So I think, yeah, the internet community expressed a lot of this. Well, and then 
you know, the estate came out with that really damning press release and yeah. just outright condemning it, saying they do not consider it an homage, which I thought was mm-hmm. an interesting choice of words because an homage is really someone's intent in making it. And that's trying to say like, oh, I don't think you had good intentions in making it. And I thought that's obviously false and like easily repudiated by the person saying, no, I do have good intentions, did have good intentions, and then proving it in the film. And I felt like they did. Yeah. So an homage is like, that's a subjective thing. It's not like saying, oh, this is not an authorized project. Well, you can, that's a fact. That's not subjective. Like (laughs) you didn't authorize it. We get it. But to say it's not an homage, it's like, really? It's not an homage? I've seen the movie three times now. I think it's an homage. It's clearly like a love letter to him. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Especially, I thought the most kind of heavy-handed moment of that was right at the end when Wallace is out scraping his windshield in the morning and Lipsky's frantically running through all the rooms with his tape recorder describing them. You know, he's describing the bath towel and he's, and he's describing... Yeah, that's a weird scene, yeah. Yeah, and then, okay, and then the one part where he opens the door to Wallace's writing room to his study, right? Yeah. And there's this, like, <laughs> holy light shining onto the desk and the keyboard coming in from, like, yeah. the, the AM sunlight through the window. And it was like, okay, clearly whoever has made this film is really, feels really indebted to Wallace in some way and really loves his work and views him almost... I don't want to use that saint word, you know, because that's been thrown around a lot. Saint Dave and all that stuff, like DT Max's recent article. Um, But like, there's there's clearly, yeah, the homage aspect to the film, and it's pretty hard to not see that that Ponsol really wants to honor Wallace. Yeah, I thought that was weird. Um, I mean, partly just because, yeah, I, I thought they did go a little bit overboard on that you know, revering him. Like you don't have to Mm -hmm. revere him to appreciate him per se. And I mean, the other scene that really I think stood out to me is just being off. And that, that didn't really even feel off to me. It was a little, because it was so short, right? He peeks into that room for a minute and doesn't really go in. And I think that's true in, in real life. I don't think Lipsky really went in that room We'll have to ask him. I don't know. Right. Because didn't Wallace say, like, didn't he say that it's like off limits or something? Something like that. Don't go in there. Yeah. It's like you you can't go in there, but then he, you know, he takes a peek anyway. But no, the scene at the end where he's dancing at the church and, you know, the same heavenly light is coming in and it's, it's sort of like Eisenberg, or I mean, Lipsky is supposed to be imagining like what is Wallace like dancing and that's sort of what Lipsky's imagining yeah. but I think some people interpreted that as like this is what it looks like of like Wallace in heaven <laughs> yeah right and I, I just thought it was unnecessary like you don't actually need to show him dancing to prove anything so to me that that part of it just didn't work but it was over quickly and then it got to the great the the Brian Eno song that was the last that was yeah. like the outro song was at the big ship. And that's, I know that was a song that Wallace liked. I think they even talk about Brian Eno in the book. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Um, yeah. I feel like, like what you're getting at here is that the movie seems to be kind of haunted by Wallace's suicide, you know, and like you're kind of interpreting the film through that lens a lot. And I think a lot of the decisions filmmaking wise that went in, into the movie are kind of like 
you know, that's kind of a subtext in the film. Well, it starts out with that. I mean, it's it, exactly it's, yeah. that's the framing device of the film is yeah. his death. And I, I do think that people were very sensitive to that about, you know, is it too morbid to even show him being happy? And I think it affected Siegel's performance in some way to say, is he being too sad? Is he being too happy? How do you play it? You know, it's it's tough to play the role, you know, overall in, in the course of the film and say, in the end, are you being too sad to try to dramatize his depression? Or are you playing him too happy to overcompensate for not dramatizing his depression? You know? Sure. Yeah. So I, I think that's a really tough line to walk and i overall i think they did pretty well and if you're going to veer on one side or the other i think it's better to veer on the side of being too happy i mean what was your impression did you think he siegel was too happy or too sad in that role i didn't get i didn't get the sense that it was it was too much in one direction like you definitely got the sense that there was this kind of there's kind of a melancholy to wallace and and you see that in the portrayal but also there's these moments of levity and and these these things that are quite humorous and uh, parts where you know he's really concerned about authenticity and and not being seen as disingenuous like hey man just be a good guy uh, the kitchen scene right just right. kind of like the sort of the climax in their characters interaction but yeah I mean like I got the like I think his portrayal was that this guy is very human and he kind of exhibits the range of human emotion um, it didn't seem to me like he was you know wildly depressed in the portrayal and it didn't seem to me like he was you know manic or something either so i think there i think there was a fairly good balance between those two things in the movie and the portrayal well back to the saint thing you know you mentioned the saintliness thing and this is something that's come up all the time and really since his death that people have kind of made fun of that idea and said oh everyone really just because people said a lot of good things about wallace right so these people said tons of good stuff and i think people started to question that and say wow it's kind of messed up part of our culture that people would question it and say oh is that really true and then there's plenty of other people willing to step in and talk about a human being especially someone they dated or someone they knew personally and say no he was actually a big asshole or no <laughs> he was actually real violent and i hated him i'm like yeah. wow that doesn't really sound like all these hundreds of student reviews that have told he's the best teacher in the history of their lives. It's like, well, yeah. he was a jerk to me one time. I was like, well, okay. So there's been this big thing about like, most people say you're good. Well, then you're a saint and we don't need saints. I think it's more intriguing when you say we do, we do need heroes. We do need people that, you know, are worth looking up to or worth emulating. Yeah. And, you know, maybe hero is not the right word. Cause I, to me, a hero is someone who, like sacrificing something movie. <laughs> yeah right yeah. well and it's someone who like actively sacrifices themselves for others right. you know mm-hmm. whereas a writer it's real tough to be, actually be a hero just being a writer because you know yeah, what you're sitting behind a desk and yeah typing out some words yeah but to be a saint i mean my god is that so wrong to be called a saint but there's all of this active pushback on that to say no we don't we don't need to worship him. And it's like, no one's really worshiping him. We're, you know, there's right. people who admire him and who said good things about him said, oh, he really did, uh, you know, sacrifice for other people in little ways, maybe not in mm-hmm. big ways. He really did 
you know, petty little unsexy ways. Exactly. And I mean, there's tons of stories where, you know, his agent, Bonnie Nadell tells a good story about, you know, the day before Christmas, he's in line at the post office to mail back a signed copy of a book to someone who wrote to him to request it signed, you know, at his own expense to pay for it to be mailed back. He would still sign the copy, mail it out as quickly as possible, or, you know, wait in line at the post office to do it when he should be at home writing. And, you know, it's little things like that. Everyone who wrote to him got a response. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. I mean, for it's really impressive. Like, uh, I don't know too many other writers who have that kind of ethic. And it's he did it not to get attention and so people would say good things. He did it because he felt like it was the right thing to do. And so it's little stuff like that where people came out after his death and said all this great stuff that he did, and now he has a reputation of being a saint. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. that's stupid for its own sake, but it's not wrong to say someone was good in life. Like what? Right. Yeah. There's backlash to that. Like, oh, you were too good. (laughs) Can't win, man. Yeah. Yeah. And this, and then I mean, death really complicates that whole thing too, right? Because while you're alive, you know, there's probably people who will say a lot of bad things about you. But then after you die, it's like, oh, everyone just comes out with the best stuff. And, and kind of, you know, with Wallace, there's, you don't want to use the term cult of personality, but kind of that, like, I don't know, posthumous kind of elevation of, of a persona that maybe didn't exist or maybe did exist in some way, but now it's been exaggerated. And I wonder, you know, to what extent that factors into oh, I'm sure Wallace it's a part specifically, of it. right? Oh, yeah. I'm sure it's a part of it. And, you know, this the suicide part of it, too. It's not like he died in a car crash. I mean, this, right. the suicide part of it, too, is I think people, you know, the narrative of his life story really came out after his death and that I had no idea. I followed his whole career, you know, from back into the mid-90s, and I had no idea that he was really clinically depressed and had, you know, been on antidepressants his, you know, whole adult life. I had no idea about that. Yeah, and had electroshock therapy and all that stuff, too. I mean, it was really shocking to me when all those stories came out about, you know, specific drugs that he had been on. I remember his father gave an interview to the New York Times, and I was I was really shocked at it because he seemed, you know, I wouldn't say totally happy, but pretty well adjusted and he seemed you know not depressed at least you know in his public persona no one would peg him i you know who i i'd say no one would peg him as a potential suicide Mm -hmm. even though he had this dark history of people who really knew him he had attempted suicide many times and he had had a lot of struggles with depression but he basically hid that and lied about it and not you know not in a bad way but to to say he didn't want to talk about it and he didn't want it publicly discussed as part of his life. And it wasn't. It really wasn't. I mean, Charlie Rose brings it up a little bit and he says, you know, it was just not interesting. <laughs> and so that's his way of putting it off, you know, that he, and, and it's true, like he didn't do heroin and he didn't do, you know, maybe the sexy side of addiction. And he was really addicted to, you know, marijuana yeah. and some Alcohol, drinking yeah. and TV, yeah. right? But he didn't want to get up there and talk about AA. I mean, the whole point of it is is anonymous. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So I think, you know, the people that we have in our culture to look up to who are artists and writers and musicians and filmmakers, there's always a tendency to try to tear them down and to try to say they're not only 
human like us, they're actually worse than us. They're actually failures. They're actual like terrible people. And I don't want anything to do with them. And there's plenty of that with writers who are really popular, who are really famous. I mean, Franzen, tons of backlash against him. Maybe rightfully so. Maybe some (laughs) of it not. Surely not all of it. But anyone who gets enough fame and success, people absolutely will hate them. And I mean, that to me is just an ever, you know, ever constant in our lives. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm trying to think we've we've touched on, you know, the, the whole fact we didn't go too far into should the film exist. And that clearly, I think David Lipsky has a legal right to tell his story. And the state clearly was not able to stop him from telling his story, which happened to involve a public figure. But, you know, I, I wrote a little thing this summer about this and, I kind of mentioned it in there, I think, where I said something like, you know, I truly believe like David Foster Wallace belongs to the world now. Mm. And like his works are in the public domain, are not in the public domain and they should be re- protected by copyright. Right. But I think eventually, you know, people who knew him and loved him when he was alive will come to realize he's a lot bigger of a phenomenon and sensation than most writers ever achieve. Yeah, and he is, he's a legend and he's part of, you know, the, you can't take, can't put that back in the can. Like the, yeah. it's already out of the bag. He is part of the world's cultural history in a way that, like I say, it's, it's very rare that you know someone who achieved that. Yeah. Do you think that the film, a film about David Foster Wallace was inevitable? Oh yeah. I think so. I oh, think yeah. so. Like it was just a matter of time before someone did it. Right. Yeah, and I'm just glad that the people who did it, you know, at least first, were people who were clearly fans and, you know, did a a really loving portrayal of him. And it was not something that was like, oh, we're going to show you the dark side, too. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, and I'm glad it didn't like end with his death. Like that that kind of biopic, that'd be really off putting. That would have been really distasteful. (laughs) Like there's no good way to do that. Yeah. Um, And I mean, to me, that, that movie might be made someday i don't know i hope not probably not while like they make an adaptation of the dt max biography front to back you know i don't think i don't think that will happen. no of course not but it would be terrible if it did it would be terrible it'd be terrible and it would i don't think it would make a great film no um but i think you know a whole generation of people would have to die off before that would even be a possibility but i think other people will want to adapt his works right and well, yeah, like someone has the Red Symphony Jest. Uh, Michael Schur, I think, Michael Schur. Yeah, right. But it hasn't worked out well. Like the Krasinski movie, I think, was pretty bad. It was pretty terrible. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty yeah. bad. I mean, that's a, I appreciate that that would be hard to make into a film because it's, I mean, it's got a somewhat something of a cohesive theme, right, with all these interviews, but then it's not really like an overarching narrative. So to try and fit that into it, like, you know, fit characters into that and kind of storyline into that. I appreciate that that was a tough job. And I think it's, it's cool that he set off to try and make that book into a movie and not something, I mean, like broom of the system would be weird, but at least there's narrative, right? An arc to an arc to Here's why I'm pretty harsh on it is that I think it was aiming for a certain target and missed that target that no good, performance no level of great acting was going to save that that really what krasinski saw in those interviews 
did not translate well to the film at all. And the one that did is the one that he shortened. And to me, this is where it could have been the saving grace of the film is the last one where Krasinski does it as brief interview number 20 in the Granola Cruncher story. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was sort of supposed to be the climax of the film. But by that point, it was so buried in these kind of dry, hung together artificial performances that I think that part of it was lost. So I do think there was a good bit there. I wish that part of it had gotten more attention. And you're right, though. He just couldn't figure out a way to make it into a coherent film. I mean, the thing about the grad student traveling around, a silent grad student like that, it just didn't work. It's been quite a while since I saw it, so I don't remember a lot of the particulars of it, but it'd be interesting to revisit it and and see what I think of it now. It's many years later. But Wallace did give his blessing for that, and I think that other other people will come along and try to adapt his work into films. There was a guy for a long time trying to make Oblivion, the short story, into a movie, Mm. and he still might do it. Um, And then there was the stage play at the... Right. In New York, right? Yeah, the supposedly supposedly fun fun thing. thing. It was a one-man kind of monologue stage play, and I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah. But it, was, it got really good reviews, so I, I, and I know he had permission from the estate to do that. So yeah. I think we'll be in for more artwork and media and films because people love his work and really love him. Mm-hmm. And, and like we talked about this last episode, but just the prolificacy of pop culture references there are to Wallace now. It's just it's snowballing. Yeah, I no, I agree. And it's probably not going to stop anytime soon. No. Yeah. Because he's got this like hip kind of cachet as a as a young writer who identified some some things about North American culture that are really present in a lot of our lives, right? You know that idea of like he already talks about all of his friends are wildly educated, come from wealthy families. They're not hard up for any for money or for you know anything like that. But yet there's just this weird underlying sadness that no one can really identify uh, what the cause of it is, you know. And so like he get he gets at these kind of problems these universal problems that a lot of people are feeling well and what's what's interesting to me about that is it's been almost 20 years i mean infinite just came out almost 20 years ago and there's really have been very few writers who have achieved that same level of you know cultural standing especially novelists or you know just not the part of the culture the way that it used to be franzen is the other exception i would say because he's been on the cover of time magazine and stuff like that like his books have been you know in part of the cultural discourse whether you love him or hate him they've he's gotten that kind of attention although he's not the hip and cool person that Wallace was right so <laughs> yeah that's not really uh, the the cultural cachet like he has not become shorthand for much else besides being kind of grouchy yeah publicity man you know gotta think about it uh, he still sells a lot of books i think he made five million dollars off freedom oh yeah i think that, i think that maybe pure purity was i mean he's getting seven figure advances on all of his books like he right. pretty well made it dude yeah yeah um speaking of the 20th anniversary of infinite jest did you have you seen some of the covers that uh they did contests for yes fan covers for the 20th anniversary edition have you seen some of those around Yes, I've been looking at them on... Um, Chris Ayers has been posting a lot of those. Yeah, Chris has been collecting them on his Tumblr, poorurichentertainment.tumblr.com. Yeah, and he's the guy who has come out with all the James O. Incandenza 
movie posters. Um, so if you've seen those around the internet, uh, he's yeah. a guy out of Arizona who was at the conference in May and he show, he did a presentation showing all of those posters. So now he's collecting all of these submissions and, and putting them on his site. Very worth checking out. There's some really interesting ones. And the publisher, Little Brown, said they were going to announce the winner on or about October 1st. And okay. tomorrow's October 12th. And so I'm really hoping... And no word yet. No, no word yet. So I'm really hoping this week we see who wins that contest because, you know, not only do you get a $1,000 prize, you also get your winning design on the cover of a book that's going to sell a lot of copies and you yeah. know be part of this cultural history that we're talking about. So I think it's a really exciting contest. I'm glad they did it. Um, yeah, that's cool. I, I'm curious to hear. I don't know who is writing the introduction to that book. Yeah, I haven't heard anything about that either. Hmm. I hope they take out the Dave Eggers one, which will be a little dated by now. Sure. And then replace it with a new one. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know who they will get to do that. Yeah. You know, it's fun. that introduction by Dave Eggers is quite funny because I read the book in 2007. And at the time, I was I just turned 25. I just finished my Bachelor of Arts degree. And I was just going into my education degree. And, you know, he's like, this book appeals to a pretty specific audience. Most of them are male, about 25, probably have, <laughs> you know, at least an undergraduate degree. And he, this description was just so aptly applied to me that I, I most felt, of them named Dave. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I just felt like, like a stereotype or something, which was really dehumanizing, but also like okay so i mean i'm in company that's kind of similar to me i guess that's some, worth something uh, that's kind of encouraging yeah. actually to say yeah. hey they know they know their market at least yeah they've hit the target market well here well that's the stereotype but i will say i think it's wrong sure and i think that i think that at least 50 percent of the fans that i have met over the past 15, 20 years of being involved in this community of DFW fans, at least half of them are female. Yeah, exactly. So, so this perception that there's just, it's all men and they're all young white dudes with college degrees, (laughs) totally wrong. Yeah, absolutely. There's certainly a lot more um, at certain stages of like academia or, you know, in Twitter or something, but in the real world and in especially on our email list, which, you know, is pretty non-exclusive. Anyone can sign up. You know, we have a ton of women. Even Canadians. Even Canadians are allowed. Yeah. No, we have a ton of women at all different ages of life who have found, you know, a ton of value in Wallace's work and want to talk about it. So I I, I don't really like that stereotype and I don't buy into it. (laughs) I disagree with it. Yeah, exactly. It just doesn't jive with my reality, but... Yeah, yeah. Um, this does bring up an interesting topic that maybe we could explore in a future episode. Um, one, of, one of the kind of... Uh, one of the major Wallace scholars, Mary Kay Holland, uh, brought this up at a, at a conference, uh, the one in Paris, that no one really seems to be, at least in scholarship, talking much about uh, feminism and Wallace. You know, how would a feminist approach uh, read some of Wallace's texts? And, you know, she brought up the idea that he always refers to when he's talking about the reader, he always refers to the reader as she or her, you know, in interviews and various other places. But yet there seems to be maybe, and some people might say some kind of misogyny in to some extent in some of Wallace's work, maybe like the earlier stuff, particularly. Um, and that's kind of an interesting thing maybe to talk about academically. Well, 
funny you should bring this up because at the conference I had a good long conversation with a scholar named Danielle Ely and Danielle is writing her thesis on this very topic. So uh, let's follow up on that. You and I will have a lot more to talk because I think it's really important part of the scholarship, but also for the popular perception of his work and his fans. So I'm hoping we can, we'll find time. We'll talk, talk about that in greater depth. Absolutely. So Matt, any, uh, any final thoughts here on the end of the tour? Well, my final thought on the movie is that I judge it by what it was trying to do. And I think in that regard, it was very successful. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed it each time that I saw it. And I will see it again. I will gladly sit through it and watch it again and discover something new in it. I, I do think there is some criticism of it that says, oh, Wallace fans wanted it to be more about his work. Mm-hmm. And I never really felt that way, or they wanted it to be more, you know, intellectual, philosophical with bigger words. <laughs> I never felt that way. I, I think that if you judge it not by what you were hoping it would be, but by what it actually is, then I think most people are going to give it a pretty favorable rating. And really, for me, the big question is how do we perceive it, you know, five years from now or 10 years from now? And especially if Jason Siegel is nominated for an Oscar. If Jason Siegel is nominated for an Oscar, then we're going to see a lot more of him, and it's going to be really, really surreal to see you know that clip being played at the Oscars. Yeah. And I mean, I, th- I think there's a good chance he could get a nomination, mm-hmm. and it's going to be interesting to see if there's you know backlash to the backlash. <laughs> Meta-lash. And, and really... Right, and really how that affects him. Because then the rest of his life, he will be asked about David Foster Wallace. Yeah, and that becomes his like stereotype as an actor, which would be a pretty weird sea change because you know, he usually plays like the goofy, schmucky kind of dude. Yeah, um, I only know him from The Muppets. I've only seen him in The Muppets. <laughs> okay, so like Freaks and Geeks or Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Um, okay, I've seen a few Jet of these Apatow other things. films. You know, like he's kind of just a goofy character in a lot of them. So to see him move into a serious role is, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how that affects his future career, I think. But that's my final thought. Dave, yeah. any final thought for you on the film? Yeah, I, like I said, I was I was a bit nervous. I was pretty nervous about it going into it. Because, I feel like, I, I mean, I don't have any kind of claim whatsoever over Wallace or, like, I have no ownership over Wallace. But I do feel like I, I'm, I've spent a lot of time reading his work and I've spent a lot of time talking about his work to, to my friends and, and family. And I, I care a lot about what he's done. And so it was, it was, I was, I was pretty sketched out by the whole thing, but my overall sort of sentiment about it is that I was quite pleasantly surprised by the film. Uh, and I think it'll be something that I'm actually, you know, excited to show my, show my friends, you know, like, Hey, here's this movie about this writer that I always talk about. And even if you've never read anything by him, you might get a sense of sort of the themes that he was working with or the the things that motivated him as a writer. And, and here's a bit of a glimpse into his humanity as well. And I think the film captured uh, some of that in interesting ways. So overall, yeah, I think, I think this film is, is enjoyable. And I think it's something that I would be happy to show um, to people who are at least even mildly interested in Wallace. I agree. I think that's a fair assessment. And uh, I have, no doubt that it will bring more people to his work, mm-hmm. which has got to be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also helped too for me that 
the Skype interview that Ponsol did right after the film with the audience, uh, I got a, I got a great impression of him that he really set out to do something that was honoring, that was authentic, and uh, just just the vibe that I got from him as a person really put me at ease too about the whole enterprise. And so, you know, I mean, this all this stuff all gets really complicated when you think about like the death of the author and Bart and and writer intention and all that kind of stuff, right? But just on a human level, I felt like pretty good about the whole thing afterwards. No, I thought he came across as very down to earth and yeah, totally, really sincere yeah. and really passionate about this project. And I mean, yeah. uh, w- what more could you want? You know, it was mm-hmm. really great. Yeah, totally. Well, that's awesome. That's the end of the tour. Um, Matt, you're in publishing. So just curious, do you happen to know since the film came out, what Wallace book sales have done? Have you seen or heard anything about that? Has there been a spike? I don't know. I have no idea about publishing sales. We we would have to ask Little Brown or something, but I'm sure that it's gone up a bit. Um, probably for Lipsky's book, I know that it, it was on some regional bestseller book lists again. So I think probably Lipsky's book has benefited from it as much as Infinite Jest. Yeah. But that's you know probably going to increase more with the 20th anniversary coming out in February. Mm-hmm. For sure. And it's going to have an awesome cover. <laughs> Whatever it is. I hope so. Whatever it is. Yeah, they all look great. So, Matt, it's been great talking to you. I always enjoy this. All right. Until next time. Until next time. It also occurred to me this week that the fact that you're in publishing and you've invested your career in, in the literary world is so fantastically ironic with your last name. And it reminded <laughs> me of that Seinfeld episode yeah. with Bookman. You know, yes. Jerry's got the book that's been out for 20 years. Yes. Well... Also, I don't know if you know this, but Jerry Seinfeld's dad worked in the sign business, like hanging signs, like (laughs) like big highway traffic signs. Seinfeld. Total coincidence, but like his last name, it was like Seinfeld Signs. Isn't that weird? Oh yeah, yeah. So you just chuck a G and an N in there, and it's uh, and you're in business. That's funny. So most most people don't get the connection you just picked up on, which is in German. My last name means books. They just think it means oh, yeah. butcher. Like I just get butcher, which would be great if I was a professional right. like meat carver. But just cleaving the stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it's it's German and Buka, right? And it means books. Oh yeah. yeah, and it means books. Well, right on. That's great, Matt. Um, we'd like to again, as usual, thank the visual artist Robin O'Neill for letting us use her amazing piece for our icon as well as the band parquet courts for letting us use their song instant disassembly from the album sunbathing animal and if you'd like to get in touch with us here at the great concavity we're on twitter at concavity show or if you want to send us an email we're concavity show at gmail.com catch me in